Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ampere Amplified. My name is Mahesh Madhav, and I'm a performance engineer here at Ampere Computing. And today I'm joined by two of our software engineers here at Ampere. First one is Travis Lazar. Hi, Travis. Mahesh. Travis is a software engineer in the software development team working on continuous release, quality assurance testing, basically a continuum of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I'm a continuous all the things. All the things. And uh, I'm also joined by William Freelove. William is a software engineer in our architecture and performance team working on DevOps and using Ampere products to do development for next generation Ampere products. Yeah. Hey, William. Hey. So I brought you both in today because I want to take a little deeper dive into Ampere's processes of software, continuous integration, and DevOps to kind of introduce to the wider community what we're doing inside the company and how it impacts customers outside the company. And I think what we want to share are stories of how we are using various types of infrastructure to move the industry forward. So I want to kind of start off with some stories. I know William has been working on some infrastructure projects recently. You want to jump in and speak a little bit about what you've been doing with regards to setting up racks of Ampere servers. Yeah. Yeah. So being a hardware company are able to get a hold of a decent amount of uh, equipment to use times. And so I've been making sure that we can, yeah, that we're, you know, using our Ampere systems for our own, you know, simulation and just general infrastructure work we have around. Partially just so that, you know, we understand all the, the kinds of things that customers could run into as as well as, you know, it's the equipment we have available makes it easier to get a hold of uh, more compute. And so uh, I've been using Ansible, uh, learning Ansible and using it to deploy, you know, any number of machines that we, we might like figuring out the, the different configurations that we might need to use for our um, simulator development and um, actual runs, collecting data, doing analysis, all that kind of work. So the purpose of the the cluster that you are standing up is for the sake of performance modeling tools? Primarily. Okay. I mean, we do have a lot of other sort of smaller services floating around that you know, various engineers might want to use. And so, you know, we, we have sort of different classes of compute infrastructure that already for the various design things we might do or things that are more you know, tightly managed by uh, the IT department that sort of are, have, have heavy requirements on them. But in, um, you know, in development, there's a lot of different requirements for, you know, different pieces of software that we might be writing or running. There's lots of smaller data analytics kind of services that we might want to run that it's a lot of burden for a strictly like ops, heavily heavy ops organization to handle all on their own and having the tighter Coupling with the whole, the whole DevOps sort of methodology flow works a lot better for that kind of work. And so we, we've pulled that into our sphere of influence more directly so that our developers have that inf- that can make those decisions and, you know, do that work to, to keep things running smoothly out, you know, for our organization. You're using a continuous continuous integration system as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So our... Uh, on our simulator, I've been using the GitLab continuous integration, and I, I found it to be pretty fantastic. It was it's been really easy to to set up and use. It's a lot of flexibility to it, and I think one of my my favorite parts about it is how it it's really um, declarative in the way that it, you actually set up all of the pieces, the stages, uh, and the jobs that are actually running uh, underneath. And there's some limitations that we'd run into, namely that. Not that long ago, there wasn't a, a GitLab runner binary available on ARM on our, our KH64. So you know, having to search around and, and you know the, the kinds of things that potential customers potentially might might you know expect to run into that they maybe there isn't an ARM version of some binary available. Having to build that and deploy an image with it uh, so that we can use the, the GitLab runner binary on, on our own systems. Then you know I, I've been able to to work with some of the people at GitLab and some other community developers and get ARM binaries actually deployed from GitLab now. So I, I have to do a lot less work hitting the 
uh, that stuff set up for our, uh, for ourselves. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I've run into in, in several places. It's been pretty nice. So GitLab didn't have ARCH64 binaries until very recently. Yeah, they they weren't actually deploying them. I mean, everything actually everything worked. Everything is built on ARM just fine, and it has for years. But they just haven't deployed ARM64 binaries until uh, last week. Oh wow, that's fairly recent. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there was enough there's enough interest from the community kind of pushing on it, and they are int- definitely interested in in supporting you know customers from from a wide base. So you know, I, I think they saw it as an, an interesting thing to provide and, and got some good support behind it. That's kind of neat because then it enables other customers to also stand up AR64 servers yeah. for their GitLab, GitLab yeah. runners. Yeah, I mean, there, it, there's there been several of the, the CI organizations out there I think have, have yeah, picked we see, up this kind of stuff. We see this kind of trend where continuous build and continuous deployment systems are you know, as a software development organization, you don't want to be limited by your hardware architecture. And in some cases, you may want to run natively on a specific architecture. And the history behind that has, you know, often been to string together like a cluster of Raspberry Pis for ARM support. And that's slow, right? Uh, or you have to connect, you know, 30 Raspberry Pis or whatnot to get to get a similar sort of performance profile uh, as you might out of a bigger system. And so like Travis CI, about a month ago, launched an ARCH64 target that runs on beefy systems. And so, you know, it runs on Ampere systems through packets, data centers, through packets, um, cloud infrastructure. And, you know, their customers ask for that. So it's a very common. We see a common trend in build systems that it, it seems to be the first target for real widespread multi-architecture adoption. Because it, to build a to build a binary, you really want to be build natively on that architecture, and so when you build these sort of large build environments, you want to have a multitude of different architectures underneath it, hardware like physical architectures underneath it, and so you know this GitLab runner support for ARCH64 is one of many sort of recent customer ecosystem requests for for better support across different architectures. Actually, there's an interesting one too where um, Docker. It's like got some, I need to look more into it, I guess, but they have some native QEMU stuff built in. So even people running on x86 machines today are able to do Docker builds of MAH64 Docker images, which is pretty sweet and makes things easy. Travis, you're a little bit closer to the customers. And you mentioned that there are other requests also for this kind of support in AH64. What other software bundles are customers asking for? Specifically in the AH64 domain, I think that there is... We've seen quite a bit of industry push to to be sort of more hardware flexible. Ultimately, you know, you look at the widespread, I mean, just look at running a simple web server, for example, as a company, if, you know, if I worked for a company that built software as their primary, you know, built like a, a website and endpoint, if I worked for Twitter or Netflix or whoever, and our goal was to provide a web-based service to, to an end customer, I don't necessarily want to care about my hardware. I want to run on the fastest, cheapest, highest quality hardware or virtual environments available. And I don't want to be limited by architecture. And one of the things we've seen is the software ecosystem in the past maybe three years has really gotten to a maturity level where you can just go install any software package you want, whether it's, you know, language level python all the way up to web server level or beyond like a wraparound web server or something like wordpress right you can just go apt get install all these layers to your software stack and until you know maybe three or four years ago you would have to build these yourself so so like william's experience with the gitlab runner which is a more back-end kind of developer focused like devops focused piece of software from an end user standpoint they're at a maturity level where the, all the software is available and now it's making that software fast and performant and, and compatible and, and putting all the right compiler flags into the build process. And so we're seeing a lot of customers that are asking about their software stack and how well their software stack is going to perform given the way that, that different things are built in the ecosystem. And so, you know, one of our biggest partners, one of our best partners in this has been Packet. Packet helps quite a few open source software projects figure out how to build across different 
architectures down to tuning the makefile and the compiler parameters to be compatible or to be optimized. And so now they're connected to over 300 different projects, all open source, that, that are really looking to differentiate themselves by being high quality and performant and consistent across multiple architectures. And ARCH64 is really the tip of that iceberg, right? Yep. It's, it's what's hot right now in terms of, of open source software is sort of next enablement step. And it's hot for us because you know we really care about the the ARCH64 ecosystem, and and our number one goal is for software to run well, uh, run fast, and run consistently. So how do we how do we do that? How do we make software run consistently? So <laughs> that's a really tough problem. You know, we internally have built a, a system, and we've talked about it at, at a couple of conferences. We talked about it at Open Source Summit last year, as well as at ARM TechCon, both those in 2019. And, you know, more or less, we're using automation to solve this problem. We're a small company, we're 500 people, and I think maybe 20, 25% of that is software. So it's, you look at that as like 100, 120 people are responsible for, for doing firmware, for doing OS, for doing application, for doing performance, yeah. you know, all these things. It's like a big, it's a big ask. And so, We've designed a system that's a completely automated regression environment. And the goal there is to really redefine how you look at performance data in an aggregate. And what I mean by that is across two big dimensions. The first dimension is the software stack. So we run on many different OSs with many different versions. Any OS that we say we support officially or we want to support officially, we run in this environment. And any software whether it's a language, a library, a collection of libraries all stitched together in something like Django, our goal is to support a high-performing version of all of that in the ecosystem. And the complexity comes when uh, you factor in time as your sort of x-axis, right? Because software is not static. Software changes every day. Tens of millions of software changes and commits happen in open source projects on a yearly basis. And all of those things need to continue to support a high-performing ARCH64 Ampere ecosystem. And so we built an automation environment, and this automation environment runs on Ampere servers directly, but it pulls all the latest versions of all the software that we want to test on a daily basis, in fact, an hourly basis. And it runs roughly a 6 to 12-hour test suite, which primarily collects performance data. And we capture that performance data and we plot it over time. We capture all the way down to the hardware configuration, software configuration, kernel configuration, build parameters, et cetera, that, that, that go into making that test run happen. And, you know, we really are trying to pioneer a way of, of looking at that data such that problems bubble up by themselves. When you look at running 600 different benchmarks in one test run, and then you do that 25 times per day across different OS configurations, how do you know what a problem, is? like mm-hmm. what's meaningful in that pile of data? And, the, you know, so the way we look at it is when we launch a product, when we launch a software package, for us it's firmware, you know, kernel, it's, there's a lot that goes into that, but when we release a baseline software package and a hardware product, we set a baseline of performance. Like we've internally done a large scrub and we've consulted a whole bunch of experts like William and, and others on William's team. And we have a software performance and product team. And we sort of we sort of say like, this is acceptable. This is a high performing product given all these vectors and all these things that we've determined as, as important. And then that, that sets the baseline for our expectation moving forward. And we track performance across all those vectors moving forward. And our determination of what's an issue is based on all of that historical data. So our performance measurements get more accurate as time goes on. You know, the longer that, that it runs, the smarter it gets and the better it gets. And we've actually taken, uh, you know, we've written a white paper on all the things we've learned about how do you score performance data over time. And we've taken, we started at a very simplistic model. And we broke it down into, well, where does this model fail? Where are we getting false positives or where are we getting too many errors? Look at it this way, like sometimes performance drops because someone made a decision and they made that decision knowing that performance was going to suffer. Security uh, is, a, is a good example where sometimes you make decisions in favor of highly secure products, knowing that performance is going to suffer in some areas. That's not a bug, right? That's a decision that was explicitly made. 
we looked at actually the technical analysis discipline from stock market investing mm. and how they do automated trading and the criteria that they use for determining whether or not a stock is trending up or down. And we've taken some of those along with sort of engineering statistical models and then some basic algebra right at the end of the day to try and distill all this data down into some variables that we can make decisions off of. And so, you know, that's something that we want to publish and we want to make available because we think it's valuable to anyone that cares about software performance. But that's the kind of work that we do to try and make sure the software ecosystem remains highly performant from the minute we release a product all the way until the last product is pulled from the last rack in the last data center, which could be a decade or more. So when you're tracking performance through time for all these different bundles of software and bundles of hardware, how do you track that back to the kind of the uh, get get blame comes to mind? <laughs> yeah. How do you find the right entity to blame and work with that entity to, to fix the problem so that the entire ecosystem is uplifted? That's a really good question. So there is a, a methodology that I, I believe, although don't quote me on this, I believe it was pioneered in debugging and testing the Linux kernel called bisecting. Mm -hmm. And so you basically are applying a whole bunch of patch sets all at once, and you make sure that all of your tests pass. And if the tests fail, you roll back half of them. You repeat that process on either side until you get the answer. You get one patch. We do that at a scale larger than just single patch sets. So we track all of the versions of all of the software that goes into any particular benchmark run. We lock to a specific benchmark version so that the actual test itself is not changing. But from a software standpoint, if we're running a Django performance test, mm -hmm. for example, um, just to oversimplify, say it's composed of a version of Python, a version of 10 Python libraries, and then Django Python library itself. We'll track all those versions. And when we see performance drop, given the cadence at which we run these tests, there's usually only about a six-hour gap between tests. So you go and you look in that six-hour gap and you plot everything that changed version-wise within that six-hour gap. And usually it's one to two things. You know, software changes a lot, but not in the six-hour granularity. So you basically bisect the versions. And then once you identify the version, you can go to that open source repository and you can go, you know, then you can follow that sort of kernel bisection model where you can see all the patches that have been applied between the two versions. Sometimes it's hundreds. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of you recursively repeat this process until you identify the one thing that changed. So that's a great methodology for software that's changing. Do you ever come upon instances where something has changed in our firmware or something that's not external, but something that we own that may not even be software? Yeah, I think that's more typical in the early development cycles. Mm -hmm. As a hardware development company and you know low-level software development in the firmware space, you you don't want to be changing a lot once you release a product. Um, it's very risky. It's expensive and very very expensive. Yeah. So one of the things that, based on historical data, mostly what we see are changes in something like a kernel configuration that may interact with our system in a way that, that was unexpected. And that, you know, typically is a result of kernel changes a lot. Software changes a lot. Drivers change, you know, not often, but they change. And, or someone plugs in a, a new model of PCIe NIC that wasn't even on the market when our platform was developed. Those are the things that cause the most churn mm -hmm. in terms of low-level hardware. Uh, we do see a lot of change in performance at the high-level software, but for the most part, projects are well-behaved. The low-level hardware impact, it's usually a kernel compilation parameter or drivers that came out or were updated after our hardware was released. Those types of things we see. Got it. And that's the nature of the hardware business, right, is, is there's a lot of work that goes into to enabling something like a PCIe card at, at all levels of the stack. I think you're doing a wonderful service, not just to Ampere, but to the ecosystem, because you're creating this kind of safety net that is tracking performance and functionality even through time. And you're able to pinpoint pretty quickly just because you have tons and tons of runs, mm -hmm. right? And it feels like if I am a, if I create some new system software or any kind of software, if I'm able to get it into your 
regressions database, it would behoove me to partner with you. Yeah, exactly. Since you're tracking all really, of this for me. One of the best things that you get out of this, for, for Ampere specifically, is that we're finding these things as the software release happens and not like way down the line once it's people have discovered something and complained in forums for two years and nobody notices it and then it finally gets addressed down the line right like that's the kind of thing that yeah we know it this right automation away. is the only way that you can get to that sort of thing and that's, yeah that's software, software, is, software is typically developed years before it's widely used yeah right and you, and you want to catch things during that initial development phase not you know when it gets widespread adoption one of the great things about working at Ampere is how tight-knit our software development teams are with our hardware development teams. And in particular, you know, I, I chose you two to come in here and chat because you actually sit next to each other. Mm-hmm. And the, the cool to thing Williams that... To this may. Yeah. <laughs> come on. Well, he gets to stand behind you, so he's, <laughs> he sees what's on your screen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that's a good thing for either of us. <laughs> so the cool thing that I see is that there is crosstalk and cross-pollination between yeah. our two teams, which is tremendous. And we get to learn best practices from one another. And to me, that, that's the, the markings of great collaboration. So I was wondering if you could share some of the, the things you've learned from each other. I mean, I have a direct example of like one of the, the software configuration things that, that Travis ran across that we tried to debug together months ago ended up popping up when I was configuring the cluster, right? There was like a CPU governor setting in CentOS that is awful for reasonable reason. But I mean, you know, it just, it isn't, it wasn't that great for what we were doing. And I didn't know that much about the, uh, you know, how those settings were before. But because we had looked at it before, I knew about the, the, at least that kind of shape of issue. And I already knew where to look because I was already talking about, you know, helping debug the same kind of problem on software, you know, well before. It was fantastic. I saved hours, if not days, of trying to figure out why it was running so slow. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And I think similarly, when we find problems, and I actually think it may have been a very similar problem that we were trying to debug in a mountain of data. And William comes from a background of dealing with mountains of data throughout his career. And so... He gave me a crash course in pandas and numpy and and dealing with post-processing a significant amount of data that's, that's all in different formats. And so that saved us a significant amount of time in rewriting something that, that already existed, basically. And, yeah. and so, you know, that also stems from the fact that the activities that we engage in are similar, yeah. although the goals for Ampere are different, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely the... Just the, the two sides of the same coin kind of stuff where we it's, it's been interesting how how close our jobs are, even though we're not ostensibly yeah. similarly in the same kind of groups or anything. It's uh, yeah, I think it's I mean, cool. it's like a timeline too. you know, William's work oh, is true. typically a year and a half before, you know, or more or less, you know, depending on, on what he's working on. But it, but it could be a year and a half ahead of when our test environment ever picks it up. And so there's that huge sort of time gap. And yet, you know, the activities are still very similar. And that's that's actually where having that cross-pollination is, is probably in the long, long term one of the most valuable pieces, right? And that if you didn't if you didn't have that kind of close enough connection, a year and a half is a long time. It's long enough that it's going to float in and out of somebody's memory. Yep. And so if the other person kind of asks casually about it on some forum or whatever and doesn't have sort of a direct line to go and talk to somebody in that hardware team, it's hard for them to, to you know, easily find someone who might know the right answer. But if they know the group of people who probably dealt with it, this issue or something related to it before, it's really easy for them to find the right person and get the right answer. Yeah. If I could plug Ampere's size here as a huge benefit to us, you know, this would be yeah. the place because, yeah. you know, when you when you surpass tens of thousands of people in, in one company you know, working on one roadmap, inevitably it's, it, it can be very hard to find the right person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people tend to get more specialized in, in those kind of environments. Whereas, you know, here at Ampere, I think we all take on a little bit of everything. Yeah. And that means you learn a lot horizontally across the company 
And that means you know where to go for any given problem, regardless of where it is in the life cycle of the product or where it is like physically in the product. And yeah. so that's like that's been a, a huge sort of benefit, I think, so far. And we've we've been able to move more quickly because of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the other the other thing that that size has really benefited us, at least for me, is forcing learning stuff outside of of your uh, comfort zone or wheelhouse, whatnot, as well as forcing using better automation and better better practices um, to to approach these the kinds of things. I think picking up a lot of the the DevOps methodologies is is something that I was pretty excited to to go on as as a kind of new track for this. Uh, when I was when I've been in this job, and you know, back in in college, I worked my way through college as a, a Unix sysadmin, right? So I dealt with setting up systems in horrendously manual ways, where you know, like you only had VI on the system, Solaris Nine system, or when you couldn't put it on the network until it was at some level of configuration, right? And then going from experiencing that to you know trying to know ways of, of setting up like labs for the university, trying to dis, you know, distribute that kind of stuff to a bunch of machines to then seeing now I'm going to have to manage a bunch of machines. I know that's going to be impossible to do manually because I've had to do it before and just saying like, I've got to figure out a better way of approaching this and then going in and discovering a lot of these uh, infrastructures code or immutable, uh, immutable system kind of, approaches to to setting these things up and then i just immediately start reaping benefits as soon as i've actually created something with it it's i don't know it's been really fascinating to see how much better my managing a number of machines life is now versus what it would have been before i I got into that kind of stuff it's great i think that gets into a little bit of the efficiencies that ampere is promising or mm-hmm. going after with the way that we're more agile at work. We're not only allowed to work with open source tools, but we're encouraged to work with open source tools for our own jobs, Yeah, right? To make our own jobs more efficient. We're making CPUs at the end of the day. We're not making internal clusters of machines and so on. Mm-hmm. And the faster and the more adept we can be at doing our jobs with the open source tools, I think not only does that improve and let, let us get the market faster, but we're doing some pipe cleaning work by getting these applications running on Ampere hardware internally here before customers work on those same pieces of software externally, right? You know, if it's not going to work here at Ampere, it's definitely gonna, not going to work outside. So we're, I, I think we're pioneering in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. You know, we're in some ways close to a lot of the big tech companies sort of push on scale because we kind of have to. But not being a software company, it means that we don't have the the sort of shorter release cycles. That we don't have the you know immediate knowledge of of how our product is going going to be performing and stuff. And so there's a different sort of quality expectations that we have to to go after because of that sort of fundamental nature of the product that we're making. But by taking advantage of the same tooling and stuff that we, we see from your Google or Amazon or Twitter or whoever that has had to put in all of those cycles to figure out what the right way to, to do something was, taking those approaches from, from those companies and applying it to this different kind of business model still nets you some of the same kinds of benefits just in a sort of a different way that you know their products are higher quality because they've gone through all of those cycles and because they had this methodology that's based on, you know, repeatability and immutability and all that kind of stuff. And while we might not have the cycles, we totally benefit from the other pieces. And then even on our all of our internal tools, they absolutely benefit from those shorter cycles, right? All the continuous integration and continuous delivery stuff. We might not be providing, uh, you know, selling some software or, you know, providing some service publicly or whatever. But we absolutely use that for our own simulation, for our own software tooling and scripting and, and stuff or benchmarking and like that stuff's just it's it's super valuable for all those yeah i think you know although our end product is different from almost every company on the planet in terms of we're building very complex silicon you know microprocessor products targeted for high performance data centers there is a lot of software development and a lot of engineering work that goes into that yep. and that engineering work 
benefits from all the lessons that these large scale software companies have built. Our margin for error is smaller. If we mess up silicon, it's catastrophically expensive to fix. But the process that we go through to get to high quality silicon involves a lot of software. It involves a lot of cycles. It involves a lot of testing of different permutations of effectively everything, both from a you know, simulation or emulation standpoint, as well as from development of firmware. You know, all those things, you know, we benefit from the lessons that have been learned. And I think we also benefit from a lack of legacy. We're not tied to one specific way of doing things because we're so new. And you kind of look 10 years into Ampere's future, you, know, you kind of see like, we're going to be uh, beholden to the legacy that we create today, which is a sort of a motivating factor to say, let's design something today that scales. Let's design something today that we'll be happy to use in 10 years or something that doesn't create lock-in to a specific tool or environment. And, you know, a lot of us have lived through from various careers at various different companies, this lock-in of we've always done it this way. So we're going to continue doing it this way. That mentality disregards a lot of the benefits that the ecosystem and the industry has figured out. And I think one of the things you're seeing is, you know, there's a trend in newer software companies that are using all these new methods, GKE in the cloud or some sort of Kubernetes cluster in the cloud to speed up deployment times or using that kind of infrastructure to to roll out updates to a subset of people. You know, these things are common concepts in software development today, but they weren't always easy, right? I can go into a Google Kubernetes engine dashboard and I can do a rollout of an update to a subset of my nodes in the cluster. And I can do that in about 35 seconds. You rewind time seven or eight years, maybe even less, maybe three or five years. And you had to have a full-time, <laughs> more or less yeah. like DevOps slash sysadmin kind of person whose full-time job it was to keep those clusters up. Yep. And you may yep. not even be able to differentiate by container. You may have to differentiate by VM or by actual physical piece of hardware. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. I used to be in a place where we were not using a continuous integration system. Well, we, you know, when I came to Ampere, it was a terrific joy to be able to use GitLab to do my software development <laughs> yeah. and yeah. to break out of this mold where everyone was working on the main line before and the build would break and it would affect dozens of people, right? We came here at Ampere to, to create something new and agile. And by creating this GitLab infrastructure, our code is cleaner. We have unit tests, which gate check-ins. It's so easy to pull in changes. It just blows my mind that it's like, wow, how come we, we didn't think of this sooner? I mean, I think where a lot of that comes from is that the, or well, that some of the difficulty that comes from that as a hardware company, the sort of core business isn't the being, not being the software means that the, you know, we have a lot of engineers who aren't that close to software development a lot of the time, right? And so that means there's a lot of, of worse practices that tend to float around various different hardware engineering organizations because, I mean, you know, they know how to write software. They just might not know how to write good software. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of thing floating around and people just need to get something done, the thing they get done isn't going to be all that clean. And so being forced to use more efficient methodologies means that People like are willing to take that step back and say, and you know, because they want to have a good legacy, they they don't want to be burdened by this thing. They know it's going to be a problem for them if they don't think about this in a, in a better way. And they say, okay, what is the right way? Is there somebody around that could help me figure out how to do this better? And then we can find somebody, or somebody can go and learn, like you know, what's the right, what, what's a good approach for this kind of problem, and we can implement something good there. I mean, that's definitely what happened with our, our simulation CI infrastructure, right? It was, well, when I came in, I was, I'd been working on developing the simulator and I was doing like data analysis and data visualization stuff, well, largely like I'd, I'd been doing it in previous job. But, I, you know, we looked around and we said, hey, you know, we actually need a more robust build system here. Otherwise, we're, we're getting stuck behind the same kinds of issues. And, I, and for me, it was like, well, I did sysadmin work before. I can kind of see what the problem here is. So let me take a crack at it. 
And then, and then there we go, right? It's kind of off to the races of, of you know, yep. well, if you don't have to figure out what's some good approaches, how can we do this with GitLab? Like, what's the right thing here? Like, Yeah. I was thinking of another factor in that is that the the life cycle of a hardware development has historically, especially at the scale that we operate at or at the performance levels that we operate at and, and the space and, and area that we operate at, it could be two to five years oh, of yeah. a development life cycle. And I think that means that it's very expensive to change your tools and methodologies in the middle of a project. Mm-hmm. So yeah. inevitably, you end up two to five years behind in technology and or you've baked something in the two to five years that works well for your use case and then you keep evolving it and then you get lock in because the world moves on and you've stayed locked into this sort of homebrewed solution and at the time it feels really good because you know we're chugging along we're we're really productive we're able to to test all of our ip we're able to you know run simulation in this way and we have all these scripts and the scripts are beautiful you get three generations deep into that kind of process, a new language has been invented and caught fire, right? Which adds a whole bunch of features that allow easier, you know, parallel compute or this or that or, or, or any number of things that you've missed because you've locked yourself into this legacy sort of technology. And that's one of the things I think a lot of us here at Ampere have, have sort of lived through. And we don't want that for our future selves or the future employees of Ampere because it's, it's just painful. We want to be able to adopt the most modern techniques, regardless of whether we're in the middle of a project or not. Because Renee, our CEO, Renee, is not going to come down and say, hey, everybody take a month to just go work on whatever you want. It's like it's the next product for us. right? We're, we're a fast moving company. We have a very aggressive roadmap and no one's going to stop and say, you know, Go have fun for a month and develop stuff for fun, like, or go tear down your entire build environment and restart. That doesn't happen. We have to be able to move incrementally as things change and as things evolve, and and that's something that we're all designing for. Something that William mentioned before was CI and there's CD. Travis, can you define what the future is for these kind of continuous methodologies? Yeah. Whenever I talk about our continuous regression system at conferences, I always lead with a slide about let's come up with some common terminology here with continuous because continuous means different things for different projects. And that's okay. That's a good thing. Every project has a different need, has a different requirement in terms of how it needs to get built and delivered to a customer. The industry historically has been built on this sort of CI/CD. Continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous delivery, these types of terms where the situation is a developer or a set of developers checks in code. You continuously integrate all that code together. The subtext there is that you unit test it while you do it. So there's some set of validation that happens to make sure that no one's breaking the build. Then you continuously deliver it. So you zip it up and you put it on GitHub releases or you put it on your own portal or you do any number of things to deliver it to a customer. You could automatically email it. I mean, you, you, the list goes on in the, in the possibilities that are there. One thing that we've sort of adopted in addition to that is this concept of continuous regression. And the difference here is, as I see it, is that continuous integration uh, is based on a set of functional unit tests. And those unit tests are basically checkboxes. Does the unit test pass or fail? Does it work or not work? They're functional tests. You do see some functional performance tests, especially at like you know language development uh, or things that require high performance. But I think almost every single performance-based unit test I've seen is like a hard line. Is the result 10,000 or above or not? And it pass fail. That from a performance analysis standpoint is missing a lot of key context. And maybe when the test was written in the environment that it was written on, 10,000 is a good performance number. But maybe the reality is when you deploy it and you run it in a production environment, not in a development environment, 100,000 is a good number. So being over 10,000 doesn't tell you anything about how performant your software is or not. You're, you're, there's like a 90% gap there in that example. And, and that's, so that's, that's a huge myth. You might as well not even have that test. So continuous regression is sort of an evolution of this. You know, so now you have CI, you have CD, you have CR. It's sort of like a cider kind of... Like a a cider boy. Like, yeah, cider... Yeah, like (laughs) called the cider approach to developing and and continuously deploying software. 
continuous regression, my definition of that is your tests, your regression tests are based upon all of the data that's come before it. And I say that meaning when you when you talk about regressing, what are you regressing to? So the regression results are based on the prior regression. Correct. So you set some kind of initial baseline, which is usually based on your first set of data, and you give it a warm-up period. So we we don't view data as meaningful until we have more than 10 results from a performance standpoint. That's probably still not enough, but you have to start somewhere. And so the 15th result, its pass-fail criteria is based on the 14 results before it, the 100th result based on the 99 before it, the 1,000th result, the 999 before it. Obviously, you don't just blindly average everything because then you lose sort of resolution into that picture. And that's sort of one of those things I was alluding to earlier in, in, in terms of this white paper that we've been working on to express the complexities of looking at regression data in a meaningful way and bubbling up things that are actual problems. This continuous regression aspect is it's not just a simple pass-fail. It's a learned criteria that your system learns for every single software component that it tests. And it tells you at the end of the day whether or not you pass or fail. But it's based on this collection of data that, that you've been sort of accruing over the lifetime of the project. And it takes into the context of where the test was run. So in this example, let's say we de- develop a performance test on our local machine, which is running you know, some kind of um, four-core, three-gigahertz processor with you know, 32 gigs of memory or, or whatever. And it runs in 10,000 units per second. Higher is better. But we deploy the software to a 32-core system with a terabyte of memory. And now 100,000 is our score. The unit test that runs, this regression test that runs, should know what context it was running. So it knows that I ran on my development environment and I got a score of 11,000. And hey, based on all of our historical data, that's good. We also are going to run that regression on a node that looks exactly like our production environment. And it's going to know that contextually, I need to be at 100,000 or higher. And so that's one regression test that's self-aware of its context and all of its history. And now you get a good quality result of whether or not you've passed or failed. And so that's kind of the last step in our sort of test pipeline and continuous CIDR Mm. methodology. It's one of the things that I think a lot of uh, individual developers, and I suspect a lot of open source projects just haven't really had enough time to, to figure it out, the sort of the performance of, of what the changes that they're making are oftentimes. But it's one of the things that like companies providing service care a lot, right? Like that's there's a whole industry essentially of, well, not industry, but the whole field of like site evaluability engineering kind of stuff, right? Like a ton of that isn't actually functionality. It's really more performance underneath that they're really trying to to optimize and the performance issues become sort of functional issues at the scales that you're talking about for these bigger things and that i I, i'm kind of surprised to to see now there hasn't been enough of this sort of shift of focus on on how the performance of various tools that uh, developers are building actually goes over time because yeah you know it's very expensive it's expensive and it's hard time series analysis is not easy stuff Especially, you know, it becomes even harder when you factor in the matrix of hardware configurations or VM configurations or container configurations that you would need to run to cover all the end state use cases. I think that a lot of projects don't feel it's it's a value add to them because you'd have to go provision yeah, yeah, thousands yeah. of systems. Yeah. No, I think I agree. Like for any for for those those individual open source projects, it really it isn't something that they should feasibly go after, but it is is one of those things that I think our customers will be really excited about that we're paying Absolutely. attention to it and that we can help them with that sort of thing in their own workflows. Uh, that's something yeah, cool, I agree. very cool. I think that's absolutely like an ampere differentiator for the ARM ecosystem, right? Which is yeah. that we're committed to test at the hardware level and at the software level and at the ecosystem level, right? We mm-hmm. value all of those things. Yeah, functionality and performance. Exactly. Yeah. Customers recognize performance is time, is money. Yeah. And our, you know, sort of our two bullet point question in, in the software team is, is really like, does it work? Does it work well? Right. So functionality is not the only thing that matters. Performance matters and, and is a first class citizen. 
it's one of those things that's also it's interesting to how uh, how fast almost every software engineer just like gets it right. I think everybody's run into a performance issue that yeah. broke your system. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think it matters how small. Like, So I, I also mentor a high school robotics team. And there was this huge bug that they ran into one year. And all it really was was just that like this little library that, that they decided to use to make an animation effect on the button in the web app was causing all kinds of things to break down because <laughs> when you press the button, it, it would go. It would take too long to actually hit the callback and like all this weird stuff would go on. Just a performance issue yeah. for a simple little like yeah. web app, right? Like, and, you know, William and I were just talking today. I'm trying to push my simulator right now to run magnitudes longer than what we've been doing before. Mm-hmm. And we're running into, uh, we think there's a small memory leak, which grows the, the binary too large and we run out of memory and crash. And the only reason why this is not kind of functional today is because we never put in the Valgrind regressions. Right. We haven't really been testing for leaks and so forth at the, the scales that we need to execute. Everything just works fine and the program exits. But once we start going 100x the normal simulation time, we hit these scalability issues. Mm-hmm. So always got to pioneer at some point. And now that we recognize this, you, know, you fix the problem and you put in a regression and make sure it's tested. Mm-hmm. One of the things that CIDR really brings to the table also is the ability to tighten the debug loop, right? I think that there's the debug loop that we historically think of running my own software on my own PC, but there's this kind of a wider debug loop of getting it out there deployed and bringing that knowledge back for the next revision. And I think tightening that can also help improve the speed at which software is deployed. Yeah, definitely. And that also goes back a little bit to context matters. Something that our that our regression methodology really captures is, uh, yeah, you, you'll test your test in a local environment, but all the data that we rely upon is in a deployed production environment, which the OS is reinstalled before every test run uh, or every test set. Tests are run in a random order. You know, we abide by some of these basic principles of ensuring reproducibility and consistency. So that A, you know, outliers are obvious and we can throw them away. Well, B, we know that outliers are actually outliers and not a weird bug that's only caused some small percentage of the time. You know, and C, like we're confident that our software stack is rebuildable by anyone. So when I go communicate a performance problem to somebody, I can give them code Mm -hmm. that gets them back to the same place. Reproducibility. Exactly. Yeah. Reproducibility is so key. And, and that kind of goes back to what William was talking about in terms of Ansible. These configuration management tools are more valuable beyond just ease of administration. There's also this consistent environment sort of concept that oh, comes yeah. about when you start talking about performance. The smallest thing, the smallest flag, the smallest environment variable can cause performance to break. And if you're configuring your environments consistently every time you're less likely to run run into those problems uh, not all of them are bugs right this um scaling governor item it's an explicit setting mm-hmm. every yep. os distribution sets it in their own way for their own reasons and that's due to the audiences that these os distributions are targeting some OS distributions are targeting fast power hungry performance over everything and and some are are targeting more of like the desktop market where you only scale when you need to and and you sort of sort of rest at a lower frequency. And if you miss that, you may never know that your performance is, is is low. So you want to find it once and you want to share it forward. And you do that through these sort of consistent build environments and build tools that exist through something like Ansible or yeah. many other methods. Yeah, I think the the whole move recently, moves in the last several years, right, of going to with containerization and uh, microservices approaches where you're isolating environments and you don't deal with nearly as many of these like interactions that we run into uh, that especially for the kind of compute environments that uh, I think most of these clustered kind of simulation things have have run in academia or in most companies it's a lot more of uh, monolithic compute clusters is sort of the norm for that kind of stuff and so many of those get so bogged down Strictly by that monolithic kind of setup, all the 
interactions from the various different, you know, vendor tool requirements and stuff are just awful, yeah. awful to manage. Yeah. So many people uh, have full-time jobs just keeping those things, like, alive, much less running well, right? And the capability now of, of containerizing these, these services or the, the simulator and stuff so that I can just run it within its little isolated thing. Now, I don't have that, you know, as the sort of administrator for these machines, I don't have to spend all my time, like, understanding the dependencies that the developers have, have chosen for their tool and figuring out how to get it working with all the others. They can change it in a config file or in like, you know, a setup script in like an Ansible or GitLab CI, whatever. They pick what packages they want for it. There's a new version of this Docker image that gets produced and then it runs just fine every time. I don't have to think about that ever again. Yep. Yeah. Isolated components. The isolated components. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. Like it makes, it makes so much, so many pieces of this work so much easier. And there is a big hurdle to, to get over for, for a lot of ops staff to understand how these things might work and how they could really integrate it into the environment. And, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive to actually go after it, but man, it's, it's got some just massive benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And, and continuing with that, there's also massive performance optimization benefits here mm. where not, so when you have a monolithic application, your performance is less consistent because not all of the application is used all of the time. Yeah. When you want to scale it, you have to scale the whole thing. You can't scale pieces of it. Yes. Uh, whereas when, sure. you know, when you break these things down, each piece is going to have its own performance profile. Some are going to be dependent on more memory mm-hmm. and less compute and some more compute and less memory, some both. Some you could do graphics offload. And so you can go get one or two machines with a discrete graphics card. So from a performance standpoint, you know, you can optimize yourself way farther when you've broken things up into these like isolated compute elements. Yeah. And, you know, that's another pretty powerful thing that modern day compute you know, brings to the table or modern day sort of methods and methodologies bring to the table. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Travis Lazar. I think you have a new title now, you know, the cider engineer for the entire company. <laughs> yeah, I should start, uh, should start printing that on business t-shirts. It's your business, business cards. cards. Yep. William Freelove, the microarchitecture DevOps CIDR engineer. <laughs> I'm handing out titles today. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Ampere Amplified. My name is Mahesh Madhav. I'm a performance engineer and soon to be a CIDR engineer as well. <laughs> Thanks, Mahesh. Yeah, nice.